The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today we are in the second week of our series, Two Words. Throughout the summer we're studying the book of Galatians. And we're looking particularly at the way Paul makes distinct God's two words as as God's words are spoken to us. See, all of Scripture can be divided up into two words, law and gospel. Now, these two words are both good words, but they work in very different ways. Now, we can describe those words in a variety of, with a variety of different terms. You could call it law and grace, commands and promises, do versus done. But nonetheless, however you describe it, law and gospel, they work together in partnership but with different roles. The law always exposes our sin. The law is when God speaks to us and he, he speaks his commands. And the way those function in our life is they reveal what God expects and what God desires for us. And, and while it does that, it also reveals our own hearts. It reveals our own failures to do what God commands. The gospel, on the other hand, doesn't make demands. The gospel always exposes the Savior. The gospel actually points us to the one who fulfilled the law in the ways that we couldn't, who substituted himself for us because we couldn't meet the demands of God. And so all throughout the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes these words to make these distinctions clear because what he understands and and what he's responding to is that people have confused these words, that they ignore one and and choose the other or they they mix and mingle the words in a way that confuses what, what word has what role. Now the book of Galatians is written for recovering Pharisees. And so what that means for Paul is he's actually writing to a group of people. Their background is, is in a rule-based relationship with God. They, they, they were well known for their good behavior. People looked to them as the pinnacle of what morality looked like. And so they were good, obedient, rule followers. But, but the problem was they were so, much, so, much, so focused on rule following that their relationship with God was based on their performance their, their performance, their ability to, to follow the rules and not based on what God did for them. And so then Paul begins this church in Galatia. He is a missionary, and, and so he ends up preaching to this church of Galatia the, the gospel. And these people are set free from the burdens, from their sin, when they hear for the first time of a God who rescued them, a God who was crucified, died, and risen for them, apart from what they do for God. And so, but then the tension comes in that somewhere along the road, they relapse back into their former ways of thinking. They go, they they believed grace and grace got them into the family of God. But then they say, all right, I, I need grace plus. I need grace plus the rules, grace plus the rituals, grace plus the dietary laws. And the problem is the moment they add to grace is the same moment that they lose what grace gives. Because the moment that it's, it's 99% on God and 1% on you is the moment that you've taken the credit away from God and you've, and you've based that all on your ability to do that 1%. And so Paul writes this book to confront their shift, their way of thinking, and try to call them back to the very thing that set them free in the first place. If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 1, we're going to continue where we left off last week, um, picking it up in verse 6. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,809. 
Now, before we jump into that text, though, I want to give a little bit of context as, as, so we can understand um, the church that Paul is preaching to. Because as I said, that Paul is writing to recovering Pharisees. And in the book of Acts, we actually get a glimpse of the beginnings of this church. So before the, the letter of Galatians actually comes into existence, Paul in Acts chapter 13 is preaching to these people who would become the church that would eventually then receive the letter from Paul. And so in Acts 13, I'm going to read this for you. Paul is preaching and says this. He says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So Paul's preaching this sermon and, and says that, that through Jesus, by the work of Jesus done on your behalf, by his death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, he, he makes no, no question about it. He says, that is for you. He proclaims that in a way that, that there is no, that there's no question about it. That gospel, that forgiveness, that freedom is for them. And then he makes a statement, justification, their right standing with God, the declaration that they are no longer guilty. He says that justification was given to you by Jesus, which you couldn't actually have through obeying the law of Moses. So in other words, he's preaching this message and said, all right, Jesus fulfills the law in a way that you couldn't. And so if you're trusting in your ability to obey, if you're, if you're trusting in your performance, let, let me tell you what Jesus does for you because Jesus does what you couldn't do for yourself. A few verses later, it says, Then as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things. Where the people are so captured by this idea, it is so radical to the way of thinking that they've become accustomed to, that, that, they said, that they're saying to Paul and Barnabas, all right, you, you need to come back next, next weekend and, and tell us some more about this. And so when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who continued with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. All right, so they are just, they are just amazed by the grace of God given through the work of Jesus. They're encouraged to, to continue to look to the grace and mercy of Jesus. And then somewhere down the road, they believe that that grace is not enough. That, that, our, that grace is good, but there's more. That, that the grace is fine, it got us in, but let's add the, these other things that we had previously. And so Paul then is addressing that, that they, they are now abandoning the very thing that rescued them. The, the very thing that set them free. And so, so Paul is shocked. You get the sense as you read it that, that he's surprised, he's confused, he's frustrated, and even angry. That, that the people who, who understood it, that got it, that they started to trust themselves in coming up with their own conceptual ideas of what, of what Christianity should look like instead of the very thing that Jesus gave Paul to speak to them. So I'll pick it up now in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. This is what Paul then writes in response to this problem. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. 
As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So so this is why Paul is frustrated. He says, all right, I received this message from Jesus Christ to give to you. How could you abandon that? How How could you settle for something so mediocre? Something so subpar. How how could you give yourself to a good news that is really no good news at all? And so Paul is pointing out that that, that this gospel has been perverted. It's It's been distorted in such a way that you actually no longer have that which you can put your faith and trust in. The very thing that rescued you, the very thing that forgives you, the very thing that you can be assured of is the very thing that, that Paul's saying, you are walking away from that. What's happening? Several weeks ago, I was driving down 75, and, and along the drive, there were, there were a couple billboards that stuck out to me along the drive. The, the first billboard that I came across, in, in big, bold letters, it said, Jesus in the Quran." Now, this was fascinating me because their approach to marketing, I, I thought it was actually very clever. Now, see, something we may not know, many of you may not know, understand about Muslims is Muslims actually love to talk about Jesus. That Jesus is one of their prophets and, and Jesus is in the Quran. Um, and so while they believe different things about Jesus, many of them actually love talking about Jesus. And, and so what was fascinating, though, about this is their approach to marketing was they were trying to target people who were looking for a conversation about Jesus and inviting them to come to the mosque to have that conversation. So maybe people who had Christian backgrounds and experienced Jesus but weren't a part of the church. Maybe people who considered themselves spiritual but maybe not religious. Uh, maybe, maybe people who liked the things that Jesus said but didn't maybe like the institution of church. And so they were targeting them saying, All right, if you want to have a conversation about Jesus, come, come to our mosque. And we'll talk about what Jesus said, what he taught. A bit further down the road, there was another sign by a Christian organization. This sign had the the classic Darwin monkey-to-man image, right, showing the progression with a big red X over it. Now, now the the question for me not was whether or not that billboard is true, um, but, but but it was all in the strategy and their approach to marketing on a very superficial level. Um, what, what they were trying to do is, is somehow confront a worldview and cause people who, who maybe um, bought into an evolutionary worldview and, and confront that and say, all right, creationism's right, evolution is wrong. And I couldn't help but wonder, though, when, when you look purely at, at the base level of their approach to marketing, if somebody's driving along the road and asks the question, where should I go to learn about Jesus? How do they have to answer that question? The mosque. Which begs the question, did the mosque get closer to the heart and soul of Christianity than the Christian organization did? 
Around the same time, I, listened, I was listening to a sermon. I listened, I listened to several sermons, and so that means I listened to some good ones and a lot of bad ones. Um, and and I, in this instance, it was, the, it was the latter, the bad sermons. Um, and so I listened to a sermon, and I wanted to give it another chance, so I listened to a second one. And what was surprising to me, though, about this sermon that I listened to is it's a church that I would say is, is a respectable congregation um, that, that has a high authority of Scripture. So they, they have good, strong Bible teaching. They believe the, the Bible is actually true. And, and so, so I say, all right, I would listen to those sermons. But as I listened to the sermons, the thing that struck me and, and became incredibly frustrating was what was missing from the sermon. Now, it wasn't, a, it wasn't really a self-help sermon, so it wasn't just, all right, here are the steps that you need to a better life, um, but, it, but it looked at the words of Jesus, and so as it taught the words of Jesus, it was, it was, on, uh, it, it was talking about in, in the midst of the storms of life, when, when things get difficult, when there's, when there's the pain, the chaos of, of life, uh, the, the main idea was, was that our obedience is what will keep us standing in the midst of those storms. That, that, that our obedience becomes the foundation that all of our life, our obedience to the teachings of Christ, our obedience to, to, to what God asks us to do, that becomes the foundation. And so, so I was listening to this. Um, I, I couldn't help but, but get the sense, like, like even as it, as it convicted me, which, which, which is a good, good thing, but in that conviction, what, what was so frustrating what, what, was what never followed that conviction. Because I know myself, and so when I'm not obedient, then what does that mean in the storms of life? When I can't meet the demands, when I can't live up to the expectations, what does that mean for me? And so there was never a moment where Jesus was anything more than somebody to imitate. There was no Christ for you because of your failure to obey. There was no Jesus that actually keeps you standing in the storm. There was no Jesus and his death and resurrection as the foundation. The place of hope and trust became your own good behavior, not the work of Jesus. Which brought me back to that sign. So I wonder, would the people who made the Jesus in the Quran sign have any problems with that sermon? No, certainly the confession of that church, what they believe about who God is and who Jesus is, would certainly cause problems. But purely based on the contents of that sermon and what was being suggested, I don't think they would have a problem. Because they want the obedience too. They wanted good behavior. They want people to be more loving to other people. And that's the tension. See, if a sermon could work in a mosque or in a Mormon temple, it's not the gospel. The, the, the very thing that sets Christianity apart is not our rule following. It is the grace and peace that comes in the work of Jesus. The, the very thing that, that makes us distinct is the work of Jesus on our behalf. See, see, many other religions will offer good morality. Now, there might be nuances of what that morality looks like. There might be disagreements in what being a good person looks like. But the only religion that is set apart from the others is Christianity, which believes that God isn't waiting for you to get your act together. He meets you where you are. That is the Christian message. And so what Paul does is Paul is then writing frustrated because, because people are abandoning that message, the very thing that sets you apart, the very thing that makes the church the church. And so when Paul writes and he says, I am astonished. 
that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. This is what he's speaking of, of Christians who, who understand intellectually the idea of grace and peace, but, but, but then in their practice say, all right, we're going to move on. We're going to push that to the side. We're going to leave it behind because we've got more important things to worry about. But the moment something becomes more important than grace that comes by the work of Jesus is the moment that you lose everything else. Because then even the obedience, gets, we, get, we lose that which empowers us to obey in the way that Christ called us to obey. See, the moment we have a graceless Christianity, we're no different than any other religion. And quite frankly, if somebody's looking for a self-help program or the demands of religion, they will find it far better in a place other than the Christian church. Because there are books and seminars, articles that can, that can tell you the steps you should do to be a better you. And there are religions that are far more demanding, that expect far more in how, uh, how often you attend worship and how frequently you pray in, in, the, in their zeal for evangelizing their neighbors. But there is no place but the church that offers Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. If somebody is looking for grace and peace, there is no better place than the Christian church. There is no place but the church that will absolve sinners with no questions asked. There's no place but the church that when faced with the worst of sins... We'll say Jesus covers that too. No place but the church. No place but the family of God that in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the suffering can offer peace. Saying that Jesus is for you and he is with you. And he is in you. Nobody else can offer that. And so, of course, Paul says, well, if somebody preaches a gospel other than the true gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Because, because if somebody preaches a gospel that is not the gospel, they are leading people away from the only thing that can save them. The only thing that empowers them. The only thing that gives them a peace that quiets their conscience. The only thing that forgives every sin. Nowhere else in the world can proclaim the message of Jesus, that Jesus came for sinners than Christians. So the church of Galatians missed the point. They heard that, they believed that, and then they said, all right, I've got something else to focus on. See, some of you may have even experienced that, own thing, that, that similar kind of thing. You've come from backgrounds where you heard one word, you heard the law. And so you, you, what you experienced of Christianity was a God who is angry at you, who a God who couldn't be pleased with you, who a God who, is, who has never sees what you've done as enough. Some of you may even actually be here, and you're, and you're hesitant about the whole church thing because you've experienced church, and you've experienced Christians, and they only care about one thing, obedience. See, many have experienced a one-word Christianity. All law and no gospel. 
And so Paul is trying to confront that way of thinking. They're saying, saying, yes, the law is good. That absolutely matters. We cannot lose the law. But let's understand, the moment somebody is convicted of their sin, the moment somebody is crushed, the church's job is not to kick them while they're down, but to offer them the grace that Jesus meets them there. The, the, the job of the church is not to tell the people who are trying to figure out how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps to work harder at it. The, the job of the church is to say, Jesus lifts you up when you can't lift yourself up. That is the Christian message. And in the church, this message so easily gets perverted, gets twisted and manipulated. Because Satan knows that if he can get people to believe they are hearing the word of God, but all the while they're not actually hearing the word of the gospel, he knows he will win. See, many of us look around at the world we live in and we look at the culture and, and we, some of us even even fearful of the world that, that the church is going to have to exist in. And so many of those fears are justified. We look at the world our kids or grandkids are going to grow up in, and we wonder, all right, how is the church going to survive in this kind of environment? But, but I want to challenge you a little bit. See, the greatest threat to Christianity is not the culture we live in. The world has lived in cultures far more hostile to Christianity and has grown exponentially. The greatest threat to Christianity is not those on the outside of Christianity. It's those on the inside. Those within the church who abandon one of God's words. Who misuse these two words. Who confuse, who forget, who abandon. And in so doing, they sound like they are talking about what Jesus would want them to talk about. They hold the Bible in their hands and say, this is what God desires. But all the while, they never point people to the cross. And that's a difficult reality because, because what you then have is you have those who, who, who claim the name Christian and who claim the name of Jesus, but then never point people to what they need the most. I want to highlight a few of those distortions that are prevalent in our day. Now, we could talk for, for, for days about distortions of the gospel. They come in all different shapes and sizes. So I want to highlight just three that I would suggest are both prevalent and foundational when it comes to ways that the gospel gets distorted. The, the first I want to talk about is legalism. Legalism is adding rules into the gospel. This is what is most parallel to what Paul is addressing in Galatians. People, the, the church of Galatia is adding rules into the mix and, and saying that these rules are the requirements. That in order to be a part of the family, here is the behavior that you need to get in line. And so then you have these Gentiles who, who want to be, become a part of the family of God. And, and so then these Jews are saying, all right, well, first you need to have circumcision. Or, 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 or they say, all right, now you need to give up bacon. And so these Gentiles are like, well, I'm not, giving up, I'm not going that far. Ba- all right, the, the operation, okay, that's one thing. But bacon, that's another level. Right, and, and, so then, and so what you have is, is, is that these rules are treated as though they are the requirements to be a part of the family of God. And the moment that you add rules to grace is you no longer have grace. And so then the experience in in, in this kind of environment is is behavior 
has to come before you belonging to the family of God. That you have to get your act together first. And inevitably what then happens is because, because, because we know people and, and people aren't going to get their act together, are they? So what happens then in a legalistic environment is people just get really good at hiding their problems. And, and so, so when they think about their sin, they, they'll minimize their sin. All right, all, right, all right, oh, gossip, that's not that bad. And, but, but then, you know what sins are always bad? The ones that aren't yours. So, so you see somebody else's sin. All right, that's a problem. You need to work on that. But, but your sin, all right, you, you can excuse it. You can justify it. And so, so we, we create this environment where we pretend we've got our act together. And, and, then we, and then we condemn people because they don't have theirs together. And all the while, people feel like, all right, they can't belong until they get it all together. When the gospel is actually the opposite. That we belong to the family of God because Jesus Christ came for the worst of sinners. And does behavior matter? Absolutely. But our obedience doesn't dictate whether or not we belong. A psychologist by the name of Henry Cloud said this about legalistic churches. He said, it is interesting to compare a legalistic church with a good AA group. In the church, it's culturally unacceptable to have problems. That is called being sinful. In the AA group, it's culturally unacceptable to be perfect. That is called denial. In one setting, people look better but get worse. And in the other, they look worse but get better. See, the temptation for us as Christians is often a temptation of denial. To put on these masks and pretend we've got it together. To pretend we've got our sin figured out. And all the while, it makes the, pe- other, the people who are honest feel like they're never good enough. See, grace frees us to drop our masks, to be honest about our sin and our failures, because it's that which Jesus died to save us from. The second distortion would be called lawlessness. Lawlessness is the opposite end of the pendulum. Legalism elevates the law and pushes the gospel aside. Lawlessness actually elevates the gospel and pushes the law aside. Now the interesting thing about this, if we understand law and gospel and how they function, if the law always exposes our sin, then there becomes a problem if we stop talking about the very thing that exposes sin. Right? When we talk about obedience, when we talk about rules, when we talk about what God desires, which is absolutely necessary, it, it reveals something about us. And so the, the temptation of lawlessness, this distortion, it, it says, all right, all right, we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about the rules because God is all about grace. And so they'll talk a lot about grace and love and acceptance. But the problem is the moment you eliminate the law, you also end up eliminating the need for grace. Because if you don't realize you have a sin problem, what do you need to look to the cross for? If you don't realize that deep within your heart is this corruption, what do you need healing from? And see, the biggest problem with this is because many, uh, many people who will fall into this trap of lawlessness are very good at talking about grace. But the problem is grace in the context of lawlessness is nothing more than a hypothetical idea. And we don't need hypothetical forgiveness. We need forgiveness for actual, real, flesh and blood sins. The kind of sins that actually broke relationships. 
the kind of sins that actually damaged us, the kind of sins that actually drive a wedge between us and God. Those are the sins that Jesus died for, the sin that, 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 is, that we are born into. To dismiss the law, we end up also dismissing grace. Now, the third distortion that I want to talk about, this, is, this would be um, a, a made-up word, and this would be the, a distortion called gospel. Now, now gospel is the mixing, the mingling, and confusing of God's two words. See, see where legalism it focuses just on one word, and lawlessness focuses just on one word, gospel uses both words but calls them the wrong things. And so this can be difficult to, to detect because what you'll find is you'll find people talking about the word of God and, and talking about grace and acceptance and also talking about obedience. But when the lines get blurry, then it becomes very easy to put our trust in the wrong place. And so we'll talk about our heart for missions. We'll talk about our desire to reach the lost. We'll talk about loving the least and loving our enemies. And then we'll call that grace. And so then the problem with that is that if we're trying to trust in grace, but we believe that grace is what we do to reach the lost, then we're trusting in our own efforts. See, when we mix and mingle law and gospel, grace becomes burdensome. And we try to put our assurance based on what we can look at in our own life that, that, that assures us that, yes, we must be saved because we, we go to church and we read and we pray and we do this. But that's never what, what God tells us to put our hope and our assurance in. Our assurance is always meant to be in something objective that we cannot question. Christ for us. Christ on the cross. Christ given to us in his body and blood. That is an objective assurance that Christ did this for you. Let me give an example of, of, of the confusion of gospel. There's a, there's a story in the gospel where Jesus has a conversation with a rich young ruler. Now in this conversation, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks Jesus, All right, what do I need to do to be saved? Now, now they get to a point in the conversation where Jesus then says to the rich young ruler, give up everything you have and follow me. To which the young man then turns and walks away sad. Now this is, this is a difficult statement. And if you think about how that applies into your own life, it, it can be a very difficult statement. What, what is Jesus calling you to give up? Grace demands that you give up whatever is getting in the way of following Jesus. Grace requires you to drop your idols and hold on to Jesus. Now, now let me pause for, for a second. Some of you might, might catch on to what, what's ha actually happening. Others of you are going to have to scribble on your notes. Um, th those last two statements, they sound good, but they're impossible. And, and see, this is the danger with gospel, is you can say something that sounds like, oh, that, that, that's what God is saying. But can so easily confuse what God is actually saying to us. So does Jesus call us to let go of our idols? Absolutely. Does Jesus call us to give certain things up when we follow Jesus? Absolutely. But that's the law. That is not grace. 
And so when I say grace demands that you give up whatever gets in the way of following Jesus, that is not grace. That is the law. That might be an expectation of God. That might be what obedience to God looks like. But grace is that Jesus loves you anyways when you fail to do so. When I say grace requires you to let go of your idols, does, does God tell you to let go of your idols? Absolutely. Does obedience mean not worshiping other gods? Absolutely. But that's the law. That is not grace. Grace doesn't require anything. And so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is speaking the law to expose something in this rich young man. And he does it so that, that the response would end up being what, the way the disciples actually respond. See, the disciples then ask, well, who then can be saved? Because that's what the law does. Makes us ask that question. Well, if this is what God demands, I can't do it. So now what? See, grace doesn't make demands, it only gives. And it always gives to the people who couldn't meet those demands. That is the promise of the gospel. And Paul says there is no other gospel. That this is the gift of God that is given to you. It does not depend on you meeting the demands. It does not depend on you obeying the rules. It depends solely on the work of Jesus who fulfilled the law for your justification. Who sacrificed himself to substitute himself. To rise again on your behalf. And so Paul is pleading, don't walk away from that good news. Don't settle for some other message. Because there is no other gospel. Galatians chapter 1, which we read last week, says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is what Paul wants to point us to. That's the gospel. Jesus for you. Jesus gives what no other gospel gives. Grace and peace. Let's pray and then we will prepare our hearts um, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we thank you for being a God who speaks to us, for speaking to us in two words, a word that exposes us to our sin and a word that exposes us to, to, to the hope that we have in you. In these moments, we ask that you convict us, that you, that you help us to be honest about our own sin, that you help us to look at our lives and, and your expectations of where you call us to obey but where we do not obey. And in these moments, we ask you to forgive us, to hear us, to have mercy on us. And as we cry out for mercy, we ask that you remind us of your word of promise, of the gospel. That you give to us the forgiveness of sins, no matter what. Hear us now as we take these moments to personally and quietly confess before you our sins. The promise of Jesus is that in the midst of your sin, when you bear the weight, knowing that you are guilty, Jesus speaks to you one word in that moment. He says to you, your sins are forgiven.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.